0: You're listening to The Table Church Podcast. The Table is a community in Orville, California that aims to follow Jesus by doing what he did. Love God, love our neighbors, and serve those in need. Find us at thetablechurch.net, Instagram, or Facebook. And now for the message. New five-week sermon series this week. Idol Factory, talking about our hearts, talking about the ways in which we try to dethrone Jesus and put other things on it Uh, yeah, we're going to talk about this. And the reason we're talking about this is because back in October, I got to preach a message on idolatry and and killing our idols. And so that was something I've been chewing on since October. And then over the last three or four weeks, I've mentioned these five Ps uh, during the holy season uh, that I thought maybe I keep mentioning them, but maybe we should go into them in a little more depth. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about that. As always, If you have any questions, I prefer this to be a dialogue rather than a monologue. Feel free to text at any time, and I'll do my best to see those. I'm going to pull that app up right now. That phone number will be on the bottom of each slide. If you have any questions about anything I say, I know sometimes I say some confusing things. Sometimes I say things I don't even know that I'm saying them mixed up sometimes. Uh, Sometimes I use too big of words. Sometimes I rabbit trail. Send the questions. I'd love to have them. Sometimes I'm also absolutely wrong. (laughs) There is a point in this sermon where you will most likely disagree with me on something very trivial. Feel free to push back. Idol factory. When we think of idols, I think often we think of these things. This is a Sumerian idols made of stone. There's wood, there's paper, there's depictions. When we think of idols, we think of these types of statues that people often bow down to or they somehow think it represents some kind of God or some kind of local deity that they can control my Old Testament professor Frank Spina by the way is a great podcast if you're interested in listening to some scholarship in the Old Testament called The Bible You Thought You Knew how 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 pompous a little but that's how they roll listen they're the smartest guys on the planet when it comes to this stuff but he talks about idolatry in the midst of one of these and he says it's not the worship of stone the stone was just a, a thing used to try to do something that all humans do which is to make God palpable, available, visible, and then even manipulable or replaceable. It is trying to make God subject to the whims of humanity. If there's a way in which we could try to put God in the box or in the stone or in this building, then we can control God and we get to determine when we have access to God and this is idolatry. The, the, the defining definition that we have is anyone or anything other than Jesus that we put our hope into to or give allegiance to for safety, security, success, and salvation. And the difficult thing is, is that these are often good things that we turn into ultimate things. They are often good things that God wants us to have that we make bigger than they should be. We give too much of a prominent place in our life to it so this is idolatry. This is what we're talking about. Not necessarily the stones and the wood and the paper, but these things. The five Ps that I've mentioned over the last few weeks that I thought we're going to take this series to kind of dive into a little bit more are power, pleasure, people, popularity, and possession. Or possessions. And it's not that God doesn't want you to have some of this. But when we put our hope into these things for safety and security and salvation... We have made it an ultimate thing that God never intended for it to be, and it has, therefore, too much power in our life. Sometimes I talk about these in the realm of Gs. I got P's or G's. You pick the five G's that Satan will use, our spiritual enemy will use to try to attack us or dethrone God in our own life. One is govern, right? Some, that's the worst G, but that's the one I'm going to use for that power. Pleasure, right? I, I associate that with the gut. We're going to talk about that. Guys, girls, or groups, right? There's a way in which sometimes we can enthrone people or the hope of people in our life for safety or security or success or salvation. And then just glory, something that is due to God alone, but we want some of that for ourself. Uh This generation coming up, Gen Z and below, this is their vice of choice. They really... Want to be famous. We have ours too. I'm not picking on them. You got yours. Possession. Gold. So I don't care which acrony- which uh, like alliteration you want to use. I'm going to go through the P's, but there's G's here too. Today we are talking about power. Let's start with the easy one. Power. Power. Here's the bad news. We always start with the bad news here because I think it helps us better understand and receive the good news of the gospel. And I don't have any... Catchy way to say this, except that worldly power seriously messes us up. Worldly power seriously messes us up as humans. And I'm not talking about just high positions, but certainly high positions, there's another P for us when it comes to power. Positional power can mess us up too. But just the way we try to control one another in our everyday relationships, from our family members to our partners to our kids to our animals. I'm having some animal troubles, y'all. I could use some power, use some control in the midst of it. I want them to fear me. Uh, We exert power all over the place all the time. And there's ways in which we can use it and abuse it and idolize it so that this kind of power, the desire to control our circumstances or other people is detrimental to our soul outside of the Bible, outside of of church. There's this guy, Dacher Keltner. He's a professor of psychology at Berkeley. If you want to email him, his email address is right there. Um, I found it on the website. He runs a bunch of studies on power, and this is what he said. He said, we have this saying that says, nice guys finish last. And he goes, that's usually not true. Usually nice, outgoing, extroverted, charismatic people usually move up. And they get into positions of power, he says. But when they get there, that power corrodes their soul and their mind. His quote is, when you give people power, they basically start acting like fools. Professor Keltner says this. They flirt inappropriately, tease in a hostile fashion, and they become totally impulsive. Dr. Keltner compares the feeling of power to brain damage. He says it messes with that part of our brain that deals with empathy. So one of the small studies they do is like, uh, how do you feel about people speeding? How do you feel about people speeding? And almost everybody in the study goes, well, we think speeding is bad. But the more power you have, they go, but unless I'm doing it. Because I'm important. And i got to get some places. And so our empathy for others diminishes when we have power, according to the psychologist. And we just get impulsive, and it wrecks us. Power messes us up. And this isn't just true for the people that he's studying. This is true for all of us. And if I can be vulnerable, this is true for me. I talked about it with my animals just now. But there was a period where I was doing it with my kids, Machiavelli in the 1600s says, if you have to choose between love and fear, you choose fear when you're a ruler, when you're in power. And I was doing that with my kids. It was like, I would just rather them be afraid of me because I just need them to listen. Like they should, and I couched it in all kinds of good language, like I want them to respect me and we're holding firm boundaries. And it was like, no, I'm just, just trying to control them. I'm probably too much probably trying to have undue influence over them. Instead of reasoning with them and talking with them and being empathetic with what they're going through and trying to figure out what's going on in their lives, I just am demanding obedience. And then fear is at the end of that. was not the way that I wanted to be a dad, right? It's not the kind of relationship I want to have with my kids. I mean a little bit, right? Just a little Sometimes. They need to know that at the end, I'm still... Uh, 200 pounds heavier than they are. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> <laughs> not for last That's true. He's 12. Worldly power messes us up. The good news, and I don't know why this passage. I just felt <laughs> on my heart that this is the passage we want to go with. It's a little mysterious. It's in the book of Revelation, uh, but it's been it's just been something I've been chewing on. So I hope we can pull some stuff out of here. But I have other passages to back it up. Revelation 4, right before this, gives us this picture of the throne room. God sitting on the throne surrounded by these flames and then surrounded by these 24 elders. And then the thing in the corner of these pictures are these giant, powerful beasts covered in eyeballs with different animal heads. It's a scene of immense mystery and power. And John, John, the Apostle John, gets to witness Gets to have some vision of what's going on in the heavenly throne room. And he sees this scene of immense power. And the Revelation 5 starts this way: that I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one seated on the throne of God the Father. And I saw a powerful angel, powerful, who proclaimed in a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or earth or under the earth could open the scroll or look inside it. This is the problem. So I, John, began to weep and weep because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look inside it. Then one of the elders said to me, Don't weep. Look. The lion of the tribe of Judah has emerged victorious so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. There's one. It's the lion. It's the powerful lion of the tribe of Judah. That's the one who's powerful enough, who's worthy enough to open the scroll and get things started. And then John saw in between the throne and the four living, giant, powerful creatures and among the 24 elders... This small lamb. That's the lion. The lion who's worthy to open the scroll is this lamb. And it was standing there as if it had been murdered, cut open, destroyed, slain. That's the lion of the tribe of Judah who's worthy. He came forward. He took the scroll. And when he took the scroll, the four living creatures of the 24 elders fell down before the lamb and they sang a new song saying, and here's the song, I won't read all of it, but you are worthy to take the scroll and open it because you were slain, the lamb. Worthy is the slaughtered lamb, the 24 elders say, to receive power and possessions and wisdom and strength. And honor and glory and blessing. The last song is blessing, honor, glory, and power belong to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb forever and always. The lion of the tribe of Judah that is powerful enough to do the thing, to open the scroll, is the slain lamb. This is the God we worship revealed to us in a slain lamb. This is power. This is power according to God. This is power according to Jesus. This is power. Not the way of the world, but this is the way God wants to reveal to us what power looks like in regards to his kingdom and his ways. You know how we preach here at the table, head, heart, hands, something for us to know, something for us to feel or experience, and something to do with our hands. So we have a holistic faith that moves from our head to our hearts, to our hands, and out into the world and the question I always begin with is, what does God want us to know? And I think it's what I was just saying. The way of Jesus is the way of powerlessness. The way of Jesus is the way of powerlessness in the world. The way of Jesus is the way of powerlessness. We see in this passage, Paul is writing to a church in Corinth, And he says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are being destroyed. But it is the power of God for those of us who are being saved. Powerlessness to the world, foolishness to the world, power of God to us. We preach Christ crucified. We preach the cross. We preach Christ dying. We preach Christ being slain. That's what we preach, which is foolishness to the world, but to those who are called but to those who who are called Christ is God's power. I must have missed some words, y'all. And God's wisdom. This is because the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. In the world, the way of Jesus is the way of powerlessness. It's cross, it's crucifixion, it's slain lamb. That's the way of God. That's the way of the kingdom. That's the way that Jesus has shown us how to live in the world. This is the radical nature of our faith. Cross is control. Dying is winning. Christ's hour of death is the power of God. We live in an inverted world, an upside-down world, a paradoxical world, where we embrace powerlessness like Jesus did in the world so that we can access the power of God, the resurrection power that God has for us. Again, not just for Jesus. It's not just for Jesus. That wasn't just Jesus' path. He invites us that path too. We're to take up our own crosses. We're to humble ourselves. We're to die to ourselves. We are to lose on purpose because the way the world access success and wealth and power is detrimental to our souls and the kingdom of God. The way of Jesus is powerlessness when it comes to worldly power. One of my favorite stories uh, is about Soren Kierkegaard. He was a philosopher, he followed Jesus. And growing up, his family knew that he was brilliant, smart, very smart. His dad, he was so smart, his dad was worried that he was going to get bored at school. So his dad came to him and said, I know that you can get the top grades in all your classes. Let's try to do something harder. Let's try to lose. Try to get the third best grade in your classes." And he did. That's how smart he was. But his dad came to him and said, Being, having the top grade in your class is going to be detrimental for your education. You're going to get bored. You're going to be disinterested. You're going to get disengaged. I want you to try to challenge yourself. And the way that I want you to challenge yourself and the way that I want you to continue to be humble in your brilliance is to get third place. I love that. I think that goes so well with what we're talking about, the way of the world, the way the world views power. Jesus rejects all that. He dies. He loses. He serves. He washes feet. He flips it upside down, and he invites us on that same journey because power, worldly power, messes us up. And we want access to real kingdom, godly power, and the way we do that is taking our crosses, following Jesus, in the rejection of worldly power. The way of Jesus means forsaking worldly power to access resurrection power. We are embracing the way of powerlessness by rejecting the world's failing attempts at control or power or coercion or manipulation. Because ultimately what we know about God is that in great loss, in being slain, in taking up our own cross, in experiencing the pain of life, God meets us with great power. He he tells us to embrace our weakness and our lack of power in the world because it's in that weakness He gives us power. Second Second Corinthians 12, right? Jesus tells Paul, My power is made perfect in weakness. And what does Paul tell us? So I gladly spend my time bragging about my powerlessness, my weakness, so that Christ's power can rest in me. This is so radical. But this is what Christianity has been about. We embrace the way of losing on purpose. Because in losing, in not playing the world's game of power, we are able to find kingdom power, resurrection power, God's ultimate power. What does God want us to feel? How does that knowledge, that thing about how how power works, how does that shape us? What is it supposed to do in us? Or what should we feel in us? You won't always have the power to control, but you always have the power to humble yourself. Humility is one of the core virtues of Christianity. Because Jesus lowers himself, because Jesus shows us that he's submitting, he's being obedient, he's rejecting the world's ways of power, he has shown us that we too can humble ourselves. We too can submit And it's in that we find and meet Jesus. Our passage for us. Don't do anything for selfish purposes, but with humility, this is Philippians 2, but with humility, think of others as better than yourself. Instead of each person watching out for their own good, watch out for what is better for others. Adopt the attitude that was in Christ Jesus, and then Paul writes this hymn or this poem where Jesus empties himself and empties himself and submits and humbles himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. One of the most shameful deaths out there. How do we treat others? With humility. We think of others as better than ourselves. Why? Because we're adopting the attitude that was in Jesus. This is what Jesus did. He showed us the way. Adopt the attitude that was in Jesus humbling ourselves humbling ourselves humbling ourselves to the point of death because at the end of humility it tells us that God exalted Jesus and gave him the name that was above all names so that every knee would bow to Jesus and every mouth would proclaim that he is the Lord it is in humbling ourselves that God meets us with that resurrection power with God's real power not the world power world's power but with God's power to exalt constantly the refrain in the Bible is that God exalts the humble. And so in rejecting powerlessness, God wants us to experience humility and humbling, putting others before ourselves, and looking not for our own interests, but the interests of others. This is how we kill the idol of power. This is how we kill that, that idolatry of control and coercion and manipulation that we all have in us, from the highest CEO to the, to the two-year-old child kicking and screaming because they want a candy bar. Right? This is how we kill it. This is how we kill it. Rejecting the world's game of power and embracing Christ's way of humility. This is how we kill the idol of power in our own heart. Intentionally, Considering and looking out for and acting on behalf of others. This is how we kill it. One of the great things that came out of the pandemic. Can I I begin a phrase like that? There were a few. And one of them was a culture war on chicken sandwiches. (laughs) We got some good chicken sandwiches in the midst of pandemic. I'm telling you, I've had almost all of them. Pretty much they're all delicious. It's like everything closed down except the chicken sandwich places and you're like, "Okay, I guess what do you guys want to do? Another chicken sandwich?" You got it. And I'm here to tell you definitively which one's the best. <laughs> and if you don't know, I like to make very bold claims about things that are totally subjective to taste. You can totally disagree with me, but the best one is Popeyes. I I don't make the rules. I don't make the rules. It just is. <laughs> Spicy is the best, and it's in town. Good for you. I know a lot of people are like, "What about Chick Fil A?" Good. Hey, listen, it's wonderful. I love it. I go there every time my family goes there. They're like, "It's fifty dollars," and I'm like, <laughs> "They're like, here's three pieces of chicken for your children," and they're like, "Is that it?" And I'm like, I "Yeah, I don't know, man. I paid fifty dollars." <laughs> And they have like this lemon, vanilla, ice cream freeze thing. That's what I go there for. Like the chicken sandwich is fine, but Popeye's is the best. It's in town. I didn't make the rules. It's there. The reason I bring that up, though, just on a way to make us laugh, is the CEO of Popeye's, her name is Cheryl Bekelder, she wrote a book called Dare to Serve. She follows Jesus, openly talks about her faith and her life. In one of the interviews I was reading about her, that passage we read from Philippians 2 about considering others and putting them before ourself and, and, and watching out for their interest as well as ours. She says, that's the passage I read every single day when I get to work, which is probably why their chicken sandwich is better, I'm just telling you. <laughs> the Bible verse that's on my calendar every day is Philippians 2.3 because I haven't found one that's more paramount to how I want to lead in my family and in my work. And that is, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. I really like the choice of words around counting others more significant than ourself. Last slide. I found that biblical perspective really challenging in every aspect of my day. How I'm spending my time, the decisions that I make, to put them through a filter of whether I'm thinking about myself or whether I'm thinking about others, those kinds of provocative self-mirror questions hold you to a higher standard. The humbling The humbling of Philippians 2, of treating each other with humility and considering them and their interests above ours, holds us to a higher standard in the kingdom. This is how we kill the idol of worldly power in our hearts and access the resurrection power of Easter that we just proclaimed last week. Humility. And this is the question she asks of herself every day after reading this passage. To continue on with one of my favorite thinkers, James Bryan Smith, wrote a bunch of books like The Good and Beautiful God, which is where this quote comes from. If we insist on maintaining our power and our control, we cannot enter the kingdom. The kingdom requires submission. Worldly power messes us up, but humility and humbling in the way of Jesus gives us access to God's kingdom power, and that comes through, as Paul says, considering others before ourselves, and taking their interests into account as well as our own. Whatever situation we find ourselves in, we can always choose to lose. This is hard for me. I love to win. I love to win, but we can choose to lose. We can choose the path of humility of putting others first. This is one of the ways we kill the idol of worldly power in our own heart. Lastly, what does God want us to do? What does God want us to do with power and the idolatry of power and accessing real power? And it, for me, it comes down to this. Real power isn't about your servants, but your service. We think power comes with how many people we can control what we can get people to do for us. That is the definition of worldly power. Do you have influence on people? Can you get people to do what you want them to do? This is the definition. I just taught it in my sociology class. This is power, the ability to influence others to act according to what you desire and want. Not so in the kingdom of God. Real power is about your service, not the amount of servants you can have. Going back to that Revelation 5 passage, Why is the slain lamb worthy? Why is the lion that is actually the lamb, which is such a perfect picture of power for us, it's not the lion, it's the the slain lamb. Why is that slain lamb worthy? Because he's been slaughtered. It's in his slaughtering that he's able to receive power and wealth and wisdom and honor and glory and blessing. But Jesus tells a story where a story happens that involves Jesus, essentially what happens is he's getting near the end of his earthly ministry and one of the moms of the disciples comes and says, hey, can my sons have uh, the best seats in when your kingdom comes? And uh, Jesus goes on to talk to them about, like, that's not really something that I get to pick. And it requires suffering. And it requires difficulty He says, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Can you suffer the suffering that I'm going to suffer? And he says, even if you can, say that you will. I I don't get to pick those seats. But the other disciples get very mad that these disciples are are positioning themselves to get the best seats. And so Jesus calls them all over, and he says, you know that the ones who are considered powerful in your world, the Gentile world, the non-religious world, they lord their power over each other show off their authority over them, and the high-ranking officials order people around. That's how the world works. We show our power by who we can order around. You are powerful when you can tell people what to do. Not so with you. That's not how this kingdom operates. That's not how me, the king, wants the world to be, and in the future, it is not going to be like that. Not so with you. Whoever wants to be great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be the slave of all. For the human one, the son of man, Jesus, the phrase he uses about himself, didn't come to be served, but rather to serve and to give his life uh, to liberate many people. Real power is not about the amount of servants we have, but it's about the service we do. Right? Power and status and honor is really about what place in the line we're in. You go to work, there's a line, right? And you know your place in it. You go home, there's a line. You maybe come to church, unfortunately. Sometimes there's a line. You go to the grocery store, you're literally standing in line. You go to Disneyland, rich people can just go to the front of the line. You just see the sal- Like, that doesn't even look like a celebrity, and they're like, I don't, they just get to go. And the rest of us, two hours for the Star Wars ride? This is, I'm gonna do it anyways. It's so great. Jesus is saying, reject that game. Purposefully, go to the back of the line. And that's where you're gonna find me. Because that's what I came to do. Serve. The first is the slave of all. Greatness comes through service. Real power from the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God comes through not our ability to have servants, but our ability to serve one another. The powerful of the world flaunted by who they control, not so with you, not so with you. We will not play that game because Jesus did not play that game and he taught us a different way and he empowers us. Right, It just does not like try harder. He, he came to serve and not be served and to liberate. He has liberated us from the powers of sin and self and selfishness and Satan and death, but also this game of grabbing at power in the world. This is John Stott. He was an incredible human being. I think he died in 2011, wrote lots of books, uh, a brilliant mind, Anglican clergy, uh and a lovely human being. When he died, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, said very kind things about him because they were friends. Billy Graham said that they were friends and that he was a wonderful human being. Time Magazine wrote an obituary about him because previously Time Magazine had rated him as one of the top 100 influential people in the world at the time just because of the way he was talking about Jesus and the impact he was having on the world. But the story I want to get to comes from Rene Padilla, who's a brilliant scholar out of South America. He says, John Stott was in South America, and he was, he was helping leaders to grow and to learn. He was teaching them. And these great rains came, and everything was muddy. And they said, uh, John woke up at 5 every morning, because that's the kind of life he lived. Celibate his whole life, never got married, just lived by himself in England. But he woke up at 5 a.m. every morning and he did his work. But this time when he was in Brazil and the rains had come, he woke up at 5 a.m. and everybody else woke up to this Time 100 top influential human beings alive right now, history, cleaning everybody's boots from the mud. Renee says, what are you, John, you're our guest. We should be cleaning your boots. And he said, Jesus said, we should wash each other's feet and your feet aren't dirty, but your boots are. Let me watch if he, his greatness didn't come in some of the most powerful men alive, religious powerful, or even Time Magazine. For Rene, his greatness came in that act of service to nobodies from nowhere. Up at 5 a.m., scrubbing mud off his shoes. That's the story he shared to talk about the man's greatness in the wake of his own death, his death. One of the key ways we kill our idol of power is living that upside-down greatness of Jesus, demonstrated in the self-giving, others-liberating service. And with that, if you have any questions, please send them. Otherwise, we're going to go right into communion and service. This goes back to my story about my kids. Um, Just because we draw a strong boundary with our kids doesn't mean they need to ultimately fear us right. Right, question mark? Right. Yes. Absolutely. Strong boundaries are good. What I was meaning to convey was that I was using the language of boundaries, which is good, to do something that was probably not good, which is just to instill fear. But I was justifying it with going, well, I need to draw strong boundaries. And they need to listen. It's a safety issue. It's like, I just don't want to yell at them every night about brushing their teeth. And so they should be afraid. It's like, no, I should. So yes, boundaries good. I was using that language to justify behavior that I thought was not good for my own heart and soul and my own relationship with my children. But yes, please have boundaries. Those are very good. And with that, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that we get to talk about this thing that's all over the Bible. Idols are mentioned all over the place and your people struggle with them all throughout the Old Testament. And though it's not stones and wood and paper, we struggle with idolatry as well. The way we prop up things that we hope to manipulate for our own benefit and safety and success. Help us to identify those in our life as we go through this series. But today, help us to think about power and the way you rejected power. Help us to embrace humility. Help us to look for opportunities to serve at the back of the line. To really own that you desire greatness for us, but you measure it differently. And that we can, every one of us, be absolutely great in your kingdom. But it looks different than the way that we're told in the rest of the world. And as we come now to the bread and to the cup of communion, would it be a reminder of us that you rejected the world's ways of power? That your body was broken and your blood was spilled. And this is the way that you've liberated many people. This was victory, this is ultimate power. And by partaking in this, you're inviting us onto that path, that way of worldly powerlessness but resurrection powerful in your sight and in your kingdom. And Table Church, will you help me finish this prayer by saying the Lord's Prayer, saying, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.